Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. What is friendship? How would you define that? Samuel Taylor Coleridge was a lonely genius. Born to aging parents in Devonshire, England, the youngest of ten children, he did not receive the love that most children are given and therefore never had the opportunity to cultivate close relationships. His father died before his 10th birthday, after which he went to a boarding school that was notorious for its harsh treatment. Then after that, he went to live with various family members. Nevertheless, his caretakers did recognize his exceptional intellect, and they enrolled him at Cambridge, where he quickly distinguished himself as a scholar. Coleridge became known for three notable habits in school, voracious reading, prolific writing, and radical thinking. Eventually, his philosophical pursuits led him away from the faith of his father, who was a notable clergyman before his death, and also away from Cambridge before he graduated. He accumulated a large debt, pursued French philosophy, attempted to found a utopian society in Pennsylvania, married, divorced, became hopelessly addicted to opium, and eventually managed to estrange himself from family and friends alike. Then he met William Wordsworth, who befriended this rootless genius. This led to his most productive period of writing and publishing, during which that time he wrote the poems Remorse, Love, Kubla Khan, and his most famous work, The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. The main character in that book laments, Alone, alone, all alone, alone on a wide, wide sea, and never a saint took pity on my soul in agony. Eventually, even Wordsworth discontinued his relationship with Coleridge, who had now become excessively dependent upon opium. He was then separated from his second wife, abandoned his children, and could no longer sustain any kind of meaningful workload. He moved into the home of a pharmacist named James Gilman, hoping to reduce his dosage for opium, but instead found a secondary source. Nevertheless, Gilman allowed Coleridge to remain in his family for the rest of his life. A few years before his death, Coleridge acknowledged the value of his only friend in his poem, Youth and Age, which includes the line, Friendship is a sheltering tree. I like that, a sheltering tree. Whether it's from the driving rain or the searing heat, a true friend can provide shelter to help us make it through. Actually, all of John chapter 15 is about relationships. Verse 1 through 11 has to do with the relationship between the vine and the branches or between Christ and his children. Verses 12 through 17, the relationship is about the branch as far as being believer to believer. And verses 18 to 27, which we will get to, has a relationship of the vine to the branches of this world. Believe it or not, this morning, Jesus is going to tell us that he considers us his friend. Look at verse 13. Greater love has no man than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. Now, all kinds of studies come out all the time 
that show people who have fewer friends die more readily of disease and heart attacks and things like that. Who would ever have imagined that solitary confinement would be a torture? Some of you mothers might be thinking, I wouldn't mind solitary confinement once in a while. But close friends agree in heart. They will sometimes disagree about certain things, but their heart's aim are always the same. Paul uses a very enlightening phrase in Philippians 2.19 where he writes, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. Paul described Timothy as being of a kindred spirit. Literally, that word means one-souled. Now, we think soul brothers is a pop term from the 60s, but actually the concept is over 2,000 years old. Paul and Timothy's friendship was a friendship of the soul. Tragically, most of us have many acquaintances, but really very few true friends. And even some of our best friends may prove unfriendly or even unfaithful at times. Think about Judas. What does Psalm 41.9 say? Yes, my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. So even a devoted friend may fail us when we need them the most. Peter, James, and John went asleep, went asleep in the guard when they should have been praying, and Peter even denied the Lord three times. So our friendship to each other and to the Lord is not always going to be perfect. But the Lord's friendship to us is always perfect. So when we begin to reflect on Jesus' death, we recognize that his death was exceptional, if only because Jesus did not have to die. That's not true of us. We are all mortal. Barring the rapture, we all must die. But Jesus was immortal, and therefore he did not have to die. For instance... If I see you in peril, and I see you about to die, and I risk my life for yours, and I lose my life by saving your life, it's not true that I've actually given my life for you. No, I've sacrificed a few of my years, and I've given you a few more. I have a few less, and you have a few more. But I can't give you my life because my life has already been forfeited. You see, I was going to die anyway. The Bible says that death is an executioner. All of us have death coming to our door one day. Our lives are forfeit because of punishment for original sin. And Romans 6 pulls no punches when it proclaims the wages of sin is death. I read of a moment of self-sacrifice when a man gave his life trying to save his grandson. The two were out on a boat in a river here in West Virginia, and neither one of them could swim. The child, for one reason or the other, fell overboard and was drowning, so the man jumped in after that child. Unfortunately, both of them drowned. But afterwards, when they found the bodies, the grandfather still had the young child clutched in his arms. He had been so anxious to save his grandson that he had not even opened up his arms to attempt to swim to save himself. And when we hear a story like that, we tend to become silent. Because we all know that we're standing before something magnificent. It is the ultimate sacrifice, the sacrifice of one's life. 
Because of such sacrifices, we can understand what the Lord is saying when he declares in clear reference to his own self-sacrifice on the cross, greater love has no man than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. What does this mean in terms of self-sacrifice? Merely this. If you or I were to give our lives for someone else, well, that would undoubtedly be a great and heroic sacrifice. It would nevertheless, at the very best, just be an interruption of what was going to eventually happen anyway. We would simply be dying a bit sooner than normally. But keep this in mind. The Lord did not need to die in any circumstance. But even though Jesus proved his love to mankind by laying down his life, few people accept or even understand that kind of love. It's like the Marine who throws himself on a grenade to save his buddies. That is what Jesus did. He threw himself on the grenade of God's wrath to save all who would come to him. So, why do we sometimes doubt his love for us? Do you remember that leper that's mentioned in the Gospel of Luke? It says, while he was in one of the cities, speaking of Jesus, behold, there was a man covered with leprosy, and when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and implored him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and said, I am willing, and so be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him. As Luke points out in the telling of that story, here was a leper with an advanced case of leprosy, where the strong stench of rotting flesh followed him everywhere that he went. It was like a barrier that surrounded him and kept everyone else away. This leper believed in Jesus' goodness enough to approach him, but not quite enough to be confident that he would heal him. Did you notice he didn't say, if you are able, you can make me clean? He knew Jesus was able. He just wasn't sure Jesus was willing. And yet time and time again, the Bible tells us that Jesus was willing to do that even to the point of taking our place. He was willing to give his life for ours. We see a parallel of this in the life of Jonah. You remember Jonah. He was the prophet who didn't want to preach to his enemies the hated Assyrians. Listen to how John Ortberg puts this. He writes, Life isn't easy when you're a prophet. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah. Could you, would you go to preach? Could you, would you go to reach? The people in Assyria, for you fit my criteria. I didn't write it, but it keeps going. And Jonah says to the Lord, I would not go there in a boat. I would not go there in a float. I would not go there in a gale. I would not go there in a well. I do not like the people there. If they all died, I would not care. I will not go to that great town. I'd rather choke. I'd rather drown. I will not go by land or sea, so stop this talk and let me be. I guess that's what Dr. Seuss would sound like if he were a prophet. But there are several comparisons we can make between Jesus and Jonah, although in some opposite ways. Jesus himself did this when he said, Just as Jonah spent three days and nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will spend three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Think of how many ways our story intertwines. 
Jonah was on a ship heading to Tarshish when a violent storm struck. Now, if I'm on a boat, any storm is a bad storm. But a storm sent by God, it was so bad the sailors were terrified. The sailors cried up to their gods and gave up any hope of being saved. That's like the captain of an airplane getting on the intercom and saying, this weather's really bad, folks. I've lost control of the plane, and I'm really scared right now. Would everybody please start praying? And by the way, I'm about to open the cargo hold and let all our luggage plummet to the ground. But that's what the captain of Jonah's ship did. While the crew was throwing all the ship's cargo overboard, they found Jonah below decks. And amazingly, Jonah was sleeping. Even the captain couldn't believe it. The pagan captain shook Jonah awake and said, Come on, man, pray. Whoever your God is, maybe he'll listen to us and help us. Jonah had run from God, and so there were consequences, deserved consequences. Now, he was dozing through the alarm that God has sent. Let's compare Jesus and Jonah. Jonah ran from a difficult calling God gave him, while Jesus perfectly obeyed the Father's will, coming to earth and dying on the cross. Jonah was asleep on the ship during a storm caused by his own disobedience. Jesus slipped on a boat during the storm also. But Jesus rebuked the wind and the waves, saying, Quiet, be still. And the waves calmed down, and it was completely calm. Jonah became angry for showing grace towards, with God for showing grace towards repentant sinners, while Jesus modeled God's grace towards repentant sinners. Jonah was angry enough to die because of God's grace towards his enemies, whereas Jesus was compassionate enough to die because of his love for his enemies. But here's the most compelling one. To his credit, Jonah asked to be thrown overboard to appease the wrath of Almighty God, knowing the more, the more we sin, the more we provoke the tempestuous wrath of God. But wonder of wonders, Jesus said, Pick me up and throw me into the sea of God's wrath. The man Christ Jesus became sin for us, and in him our sins are cast into the sea of God's forgetfulness. It is in him that we have peace with God as the storm of God's anger is calm for all of those who will trust the Savior. Jonah spent three days inside the belly of a great fish because of his own sinfulness and rebellion whereas Jesus spent three days in the night, and nights in the belly of the earth because of our sin, our sin and rebellion. Verse 14, please. You are my friends if you do what I command you. The Bible calls those who know and love the Lord Jesus Christ by many names and titles. Some of these include believers, beloved of God, Children of God, children of promise, children of light, sons of the resurrection, Christians, disciples, the elect, the godly, heirs of God, heirs of promise, heirs of salvation, the righteous, lights of the world, living stones, members of the body of Christ, people of God, a chosen race, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession the salt of the earth, and saints. But the word friend captures a unique aspect of communion with the Lord. 
This brief passage reveals four characteristics of Jesus' friends. They are, they are those who love each other, obey him, know divine truth, and have been specially chosen by the Lord himself. However, we must not interpret this word friend in a limited way because the Greek word there means a friend as in a friend at court. It describes that inner circle that would be around a king or an emperor. In John 3.29, it refers to the best man at the wedding. A custom from biblical times sheds light on the great honor that we as believers have in being the friends of Christ. William Barclay writes, The phrase is lit up by custom practice at courts, both of the Roman emperors and of kings in the Middle East. At these courts, there was a very select group called the friends of the king or the friends of the emperor. At all times, they had access to the king. They even had the right to come to his bedchamber at the beginning of the day. He talked to them before he talked to his generals, his rulers, or his statesmen. The friends of the king were those who had the closest and the most intimate connection with him. Let's remember this. The friends of the king would be close to him, and they would know his secrets, but they would also be subject to him and have to obey his commands. Thus, there is no conflict between being a friend and being a servant. Yet the perfect illustration of this in Scripture is Abraham, who was called the friend of God, but who was also the servant of God. In Genesis 18, the Lord and two angels came to visit Abraham as they were on their way to investigate the sin of Sodom. And even though Abraham was nearly 100 years old at this point, he interrupted his noonday rest, greeted the visitors, saw to their comfort, and fed them a delicious meal. In the first 15 verses of that chapter, Abraham is on the move, and twice he refers to himself as a servant. Scripture records this old man hastened and ran and encouraged others to perform their work quickly, which is a perfect example of a servant. Nor did Abraham sit down and eat with them. Like a true servant, he stood nearby, ready to do their bidding. But in the last half of the chapter, the atmosphere changes, and Abraham is quietly standing still, communing with the Lord. He is still a servant, but now he is being a friend. Shall I, ha shall I hide from Abraham that which I'm about to do, said the Lord? We see that as a friend of God, Abraham shared some of God's secrets. It is that kind of relationship that Jesus described when he called his disciples and us, by extension, his friends. It was certainly a relationship of love, both for him and for each other. Abraham was God's friend because he obeyed God. But if we have continued fellowship with the world, we then experience enmity with, enmity with God. Case in point, Lot in Sodom was not called God's friend, even though the Bible says Lot was a righteous and a saved man. God told Abraham what he planned to do in the cities of the plain, and Abraham was able to intercede for Lot and his family. So don't miss this. The proof of our friendship to Jesus is whether or not we obey his commands. You see, you can be a servant of God without being a friend of God. 
The way to become his friend is to obey him. And the only way to know how to obey him is to get to know him in his word. And when that happens, when you read the scripture, it will no longer be like any other book. In Ephesians 1.18, Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart will be enlightened. Why? That you may grasp the love of God. When you read the scripture and you find that the words leap out at you, the words dig into you, the words convict you, the words thrill you, they get big, they change you, they come and, be they come and become a part of you. It is then you realize as you're reading the Bible, unlike any other book, somebody is there. And you begin to pattern your life in lockstep with the scripture. When that happens, God will begin to reveal sin to you in a way that you've never thought possible. Now, most people think of sin as just breaking the divine rules. But the very first of the Ten Commandments is, you shall have no other gods before me. So according to the Bible, the primary way to define sin is not just the doing of bad things, but the making of good things into ultimate things to try and satisfy that God-shaped hole in every person's heart. In the movie Rocky, Adrian, his girlfriend, asked him why it's so important for him to go the distance with Apollo Creed. Rocky replies, then I know I'm not a bum. Comparatively, in the movie Chariots of Fire, one of the main characters explains why he worked so hard running the 100-yard dash for the Olympics. He says, when that final Olympic race begins, I have 10 lonely seconds to justify my existence. Both of those men looked at athletic achievement as a defining force that gave meaning to their lives. But nothing can take the place of God in our lives. Christianity says, do you want guidance? Do you want to know where you're going? Do you want to know what your gifts are? Do you want to know the future? You can't get it through a crystal ball. You can't get that through tarot cards. You can't get that through magic. No, instead, God will get in your car with you. God gets in your life with you. And it's through friendship with him, through knowing him, through letting him teach you through the circumstances of life, you'll be surprised to find out where you may go. Jesus considers you and I his friend. Now, that's amazing to me. Because I know that I can often be flaky, fickle, and foolish. So even though I don't always obey him the way that I want, he knows it is my heart's desire to do that. And when I do fail, and I do fail, I repent, he forgives me, and we begin again with my slate white queen. Buddha and Muhammad know nothing of this. But the Lord looks at us and he calls us his friends. That means he doesn't love us because he has to. He loves us because he chooses to. But most remarkably to me, not only does he love us, but he actually even likes us. Because too often I think we can feel like the prodigal son who came up on back home after returning from his trip in his wild you know, weekend in Las Vegas and he says, Father, please just let me be a servant. 
But the father says, no way. Here's some shoes. Here's my signet ring. It's time to party. Verse 15, please. Just a quick couple comments and we'll be done. Jesus says, no longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what the master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all things that I've heard from my father, I have made known to you. Now, the term slaves did not have the many negative connotations in Jewish culture that it has today. In fact, some of the most notable figures in the Old Testament were described as slaves of God, but just using the word servant instead. These include Moses, Joshua, Caleb, Job, David, and even in Isaiah, the Messiah. In the New Testament, we have Paul, James, Peter, Jude, and John, who all call themselves slaves of Jesus Christ. That term reflected their utter submission to and their dependence upon their heavenly master. So while it is true that followers of Jesus are also designated as slaves, that is not sufficient to fully convey our relationship that we have with the Lord. As I said, incredibly, we are also called his friends, which is a more exalted title than even disciple. So as we close this morning, I guess what I want to leave us with through all these teachings is that Jesus has clearly told us that if we truly love him, we will obey his commandments and we will also love one another. Jesus says, this is how all people will know that you are my disciples. But how often have we allowed petty disputes and hurt feelings to separate those that we should love? John R. Claypool, in his preaching book, tells a story about two identical twin boys. The boys' lives became inseparably intertwined. From the very first, they dressed alike, went to the same schools. They did all the same things. In fact, they were so close that neither one of them married, but they came back and took over the running of their father's store after he had died. Their relationship to one another in that town was pointed to as a model of creative collaboration. One morning, a customer came into the store and, and made a small purchase. The brother who waited on him put the dollar bill on top of the cash register and then walked to the front of the door with the man. Sometime later, he remembered what he had done, but when he went to the cash register, he found the dollar gone. He asked his brother if he had seen the bill and put it in the register, and the brother replied that he knew nothing of the bill in question. That's funny, said the other. I distinctly remember placing the bill on the cash register, and no one has been in the store since then. Now, had the matter been dropped at that point, the mystery involving a tiny amount of money, nothing would have came of it. However, about an hour later, this time with a noticeable hint of suspicion in his voice, the brother asked again, Are you sure you didn't see that dollar bill? and put it into the register. Well, the other brother was quick to catch the tone of accusation and fired back in defense of anger. This was the beginning of the first serious breach of trust that had ever come between those two. And it grew wider and wider. Every time they tried to discuss the issue, new charges and counter charges got mixed into the brew until things finally got so bad they had to dissolve 
their partnership. They even ran a partition down the middle of their father's store and turned what had once been a harmonious partnership into now an angry competition. In fact, that business became a source of division in the whole community, each twin trying to enlist allies for himself against his brother. That warfare went on for more than 20 years. Then one day, a car with an out-of-state license parked in front of the store. A well-dressed man got out, went into one of the sides, and inquired how long the merchant had been in business there. When the man learned it had been more than 20 years, the stranger said, then you are the one with whom I must settle an old score. Some 20 years ago, he said, I was out of work drifting from place to place, and I happened to get off a boxcar in your town. I had absolutely no money and not eaten in three days. As I walked down the alley behind your store, I looked in and saw a dollar bill on top of the cash register. Everyone else was in the front of the store. Now, I'd been raised in a Christian home, and I'd never stolen anything in my entire life. But that morning, I was so hungry, I just gave in to the temptation. I slipped through the door and took that dollar bill. That act has weighed on my conscience ever since. And I finally decided I would never be at peace until I came back and faced that old sin and made amends. Will you please let me replace that money and pay you whatever is appropriate for damages? Well, a stranger was surprised to see the old man shaking his head in dismay and beginning to weep. When the brother had gotten control of himself, he took the stranger by the arm and said, I want you to go next door and repeat the same story you just told me. The stranger did this, only this time there were two old men who looked remarkably alike, both weeping uncontrollably. Now, from this dramatic true story, we can learn several obvious lessons, including how mistrust can poison a relationship and how friendship can be destroyed by suppositions that have absolutely no basis in fact. But the truth that struck me as I first heard that story was a little less obvious. It can be as true at, for Christians as it is for unbelievers. Many of us here know Christians, perhaps even members of the same family or the same church, who have not spoken to each other in years. How sad. Let's put a stop to that this very day and mend whatever fences we may need to mend. For we are never more like Jesus Christ than when we follow his lead in forgiveness and restoration. Let us pray. Lord, I'm thinking about Father's Day, and I just want to say with everyone here, Happy Father's Day. For it is you, Lord, that has given us the right as your children to call you Abba, Father. That can get thrown around, Lord, so tritely that I think we really kind of lose the power and the majesty and just the great privilege of being able to approach the God of the universe and call him Daddy. Reveal yourself to us, O oh Lord. Do your work in our hearts. Make us more loving towards you, toward each other, and toward our enemies. We ask in Christ's name, amen.